All right. Well, why don't you go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 13. If you have your Bible, we're going to look at verses 22 through 30 uh, here in just a minute. Webster's defines the word sentiment as feelings of affection or and as an idea, opinion, thought, or attitude based on emotion rather than reason. Part of the definition of sentimental, according to Webster's, is to be weakly emotional. Weakly emotional. Oh, we could go so many directions with that. Um, Sentimentality, uh, Webster says, actually dictionary.com says, is the quality or state of holding an idea, opinion, thought, or attitude that is based on emotion rather than reason. And I submit to you today that we live in a very sentimental time. Very sentimental. We are a people as a culture, that are given to much sentimentality. We base much of our thinking and we base much of our actions on how we feel about things rather than on what is objectively true. You see this a lot in personal relationships with people. Uh, Perhaps you've experienced this on, on either side that I'm going to mention. Someone feels mistreated. Objective observers can weigh in and say, you know, but there's really no basis for you to feel mistreated. Like, I'm kind of watching the situation. I'm just kind of weighing in as an objective observer. I, I don't think anybody mistreated you. And we respond, but I feel I was mistreated. And that's often about as far as you can go with the discussion because people are not willing to entertain the possibility that their feelings might actually betray them. We live in a sentimental time. You see this a lot in politics, in my opinion. And uh, I will keep this nonpartisan, I I promise you. But a politician and those who support a particular politician, they, they want to enact a certain piece of legislation to bring about some desired outcome. And someone comes along with objective evidence that that very same thing has been tried, perhaps in another city or in another state. It's been tried and it was proven to be an abject failure. But because the politician feels it's a good thing, and because those who support that politician feel that it's a good thing, they are almost impervious to any objective data that demonstrates that their idea is actually been tried and it's a bad idea. And I submit to you today that when it comes to a relationship with God, with an understanding of God, when it comes to the Bible and having an understanding of the Bible, and when it comes to the question of salvation, people today are especially vulnerable to sentimentality. And here is the prevailing sentiment or sentiments that are in our culture about God, the Bible, and salvation. That God is like a doting grandfather who always chooses to see only good in people no matter how awful they may act. 
The Bible is a good book to pull out a few encouraging words on occasion. But but the parts of it that err from how we feel about things, we're free to ignore those parts. Being right with God, salvation if you will, really just boils down to being a decent person, having good intentions, confining your sinfulness to things that don't really hurt anybody else, as if there are such sins. The prevailing sentiment is that everyone is okay with God, no matter what. That the only attribute of God that matters at all is God's attribute of love. That the primary message of Jesus to mankind was, don't judge each other. You know, you can only take that out so far. I mean, some actions just, you can't practice this. That God's greatest concern is with helping you fulfill your wildest dreams in life and become the most awesome you you can be. That the most important things in life are open-mindedness and tolerance. Virtues that guarantee you'll be okay with God, whoever he or she may be. If there is a God or a higher power, or a cosmic force, or whatever you want to call him or her or it. But friends, the Bible reveals to us a much less laid-back God than what our sentimentality wants us to believe, than what the sentimentality of our time claims is true. God is love. That is absolutely true. But friends, God is not a doting grandfather. God is not nearly as laid back as we think he is. He is much more demanding than we allow ourselves to believe. And he doesn't think we're nearly as cute as we think he thinks. He doesn't affirm our sentimental notions about him. In fact, if we read the scriptures, if we read the Bible with anything close to an open mind, I I, I believe this is just objectively true. If you read the scripture with anything close to an open mind, you are going to come away awed by the severity of God. And when we get awed by God's severity, it produces in us a great appreciation for his work on our behalf through Jesus Christ. If we don't understand his severity, we get get things really messed up. And so today we come to one of those passages in the Bible where our sentimental notions get shattered by the truth. And in our text for today, Jesus himself is the one who is shattering our sentimental notions. He he exposes our thinking for being uh, totally disconnected from what is objectively true. So if you have your Bible and you're holding there in Luke 13, please follow along as I read verses 22 through 30. Here's what they say. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, 
Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, We ate and we drank with you. You taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from the east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast of the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. There are four main sentimentality shattering points that I want to share from this text in our next few minutes together. Again, from this teaching of Jesus, from Jesus himself. And here's the first one. The opportunity for salvation isn't forever. There is a too late when it comes to salvation. Jesus speaks of a day when people are going to try to enter into salvation, try to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, he uses the example of an owner of a house. But make no mistake that Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God. He says that the owner shuts the door. People will be standing outside knocking and pleading. But the owner will respond to their pleading with this answer. I don't know you or where you come from. We are mistaken, friends, if we believe that salvation is forever available. This was one of the great errors of uh, the, the book written by Pastor Rob Bell a year or so ago called Love Wins, in that it claimed that the opportunity for salvation would continue forever, that the door of salvation would never close. And this is what we sentimentally tend to believe about God. It's what our culture largely believes about God. We say things like this, well, I don't think, sometimes we'll replace that with, I don't feel that a loving God would ever condemn anyone to hell. These are the kind of things we say. I, I want you to pay special attention to the fact that this teaching of Jesus is precipitated by a question about how many people are going to be saved. And what Jesus does is he immediately points out that the door to salvation does not remain open forever, but that there is going to be a time when the door closes. There is going to be a time when it is too late. Our sentimental notions tell us that God would never shut anyone out, that God never says to anyone, go away. And while that is true now, at this present time, the scriptures are clear. 
Jesus himself teaches that there is a too late, there is a day when God will look at people and say, depart from me. He's going to say that to those who have rejected his offer of salvation through Christ. He is going to say that to people who have rejected the rule of Christ in their lives. And let's not leave any uncertainty here. Death closes the door to salvation. Even if the return of Christ is years down the road, which I don't really believe that it is, when we die, the door is closed, our eternity is sealed either with Christ or apart from Christ. Here's another uh, sentimentality shattering truth we learn from these verses. And this is one that hits Americans right between the eyes. Being casually acquainted with Jesus isn't enough. Being casually acquainted with Jesus is not enough. Look at verse 26. They will say, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. You know, what they're saying is, you know, Jesus, we, we rubbed shoulders with you. We, we sat across the table from you. Uh, we, when you were teaching in the streets, sometimes we would even stop and listen to what you were saying. Surely you'll let us in. We've bumped into each other in the town square. Come on, you, you, you've seen me. We've, we've run into each other. Surely you will let me in. They were acquainted with Jesus. They, they knew of him. They knew a little bit about him. They checked in on his ministry from time to time. But what does Jesus say in response to their appeal? I don't know you or where you come from. Have you ever been in one of those awkward moments where you're familiar with another person, you know them by reputation or you've been introduced to them in the past, and so then you bump into them uh, at another time, another occasion, and you remember them, but they don't remember you? Have you, have you had that happen? Yeah. If I've ever done that to any of you here today, and I probably have, I am sorry from the bottom of my heart. Please forgive me for that. I actually experienced this this morning at McDonald's. I ran into someone that I actually do know. And we chatted like people who know each other. And at the end, he said, could you remind me of your name again? Dude, come on. <laughs> he, he does have electric, which made it even worse. But you know how this works. It's, a, it's an awkward experience. It, it, it feels very, very uncomfortable. And what usually happens, and most of us have been on both sides of this story, and what usually happens is that uh, either they look at us or we look at them blankly, and then after a minute, uh, you know, we do things like this. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I think I remember now when everybody knows you don't remember. <laughs> you, your, your initial look betrayed that you have no clue. But yes, yes, I, I, I think I remember now. Here's what I want you to notice. Jesus doesn't bother with that little routine. 
he, he says to people who claim acquaintance with him, I don't know you or where you come from. <laughs> I mean, try that the next time someone comes up to you and says, we've met, right? I don't know you or where you come from. I think we've met. No, we haven't. I don't know you or where you come from. (laughs) I mean, mean, Jesus is not trying to be careful here. He's not trying to be polite. He's just telling it like it is. I don't know you. Of course, the teaching ascribes these words to the owner of the house. But make no mistake here that Jesus is teaching them about the response they are going to hear from God if they do not enter through the narrow door. That that is what is in view in these verses, in this teaching of Jesus. The point here is that being casually acquainted with Jesus isn't enough. You have to know him. Really, personally, closely, Know him. It's not enough to know someone else who knows him closely. That's not enough. You know, getting into heaven is not like getting into a nightclub. You, you know, you've seen these, uh, uh, this in movies. Maybe you've seen it in real life. I've never actually tried this, but I always see, you know, the, the lineup outside a popular nightclub. And there's the, the bouncer, doorkeeper guy who's usually gigantic and he'll only let the right people in. And, you know, some little nerd is trying to get into the club and, and uh, he happens to be a friend of someone who knows the owner. And so, so they take this poor little hapless guy and he goes to the front of the line and he gets in based on his relationship with someone who knows the owner. You, you've, you've seen the story uh, play out. But getting into heaven is not like that. You, you don't get into heaven because you have a connection with somebody who knows the owner. You only spend eternity with Jesus. You only spend eternity in the presence of God if you personally know the king of the kingdom. It's been said that God has no grandchildren. He only has children. You don't get right with God because your mom is right with God. You don't get right with God because your dad is right with God or because your wife is right with God, men. You don't go to heaven because you went to church as a kid. These are all false notions that that we hold about how we're okay with God. You don't go to heaven because you come to church on Christmas and Easter. I wouldn't say that quite as forcefully on Christmas and Easter, but, uh, but today you, 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 you don't go to heaven for coming to church twice a year. Daryl Bach tells us of a time, Daryl Bach's a theologian, he tells us of a time that he pastored a church in Ireland, and on average, the church drew 35 people to a Sunday worship service. But in their particular church tradition, they only received communion twice a year. And on those Sundays where they had communion, they had to hold three services because pretty much the entire town came out for communion Sunday. And here's what Bach wrote about this experience. 
and we should listen to this very closely. This kind of cultural commitment to the church is not a relationship with Jesus. It is a tragically erroneous assumption to think that a mere formal connection to him means that one will celebrate with him in the end. Tragically erroneous thinking. It's not going to go well on Judgment Day if your appeal to God is, but I made it to one out of every four Sunday services. Okay, I guess I should have used a different example. Uh, That's not going to go well. God's not going to be impressed. Because it takes more than a casual acquaintance with Jesus. Coming one out of four Sundays doesn't doesn't represent being in a relationship with Jesus. And so we have to examine ourselves, every single one of us, including those of us who are here four Sundays a month. You're not off the hook here if you're here four Sundays a month. You can be culturally connected to Jesus only and be here every time we open the door. So we have to examine ourselves when we read a teaching of this like Jesus. Are we merely culturally connected with Jesus or do we really know him? Are we really personally connected with him or do we just hang out where he is every once in a while? And the sentimentality shattering news just keeps coming. Jesus says that after people appealed to the owner of the house by saying they ate and drank with him and heard him teach in their streets that the owner owner will not only say, I don't know you or where you come from, but he'll go on and say, away from me, all you evildoers. Leon Morris describes this as people uh, who only know Christ, uh, Christ casually. He describes it as them bringing themselves to a place of Uh, being on the receiving end of the active opposition of God. The active opposition of God. So here's another sentimental notion shattered. Some people are going to experience complete rejection by God. Not just indifference. but complete rejection, active opposition, away from me, you evildoer. Our culture wants to pretend that all the Bible says about God is that he is love. And he is love. But it's not all that the Bible says about him. You see, you don't fully understand what you need to about God until you consider verses like Romans 1.18. That says the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God is love. But the Bible teaches very clearly about the wrath of God. You, you don't know all you need to know about God until you do, deal with verses like Revelation 19, 15, and 16. Out of his mouth 
comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. And get this next line. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Talking about the one who is faithful and true. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. There's more we need to know than what our culture tells us is enough to know. Here's the good news you don't have to be on the receiving end of that wrath. It's real, but you don't have to receive it, and it really wasn't intended for you. Romans 5, 9 says, Since we have now been justified by His blood, that's the blood of Jesus, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? We don't have to experience wrath, but God's wrath will be revealed. Notice that even in sharing that there's a way for us to be spared from it, Paul is still affirming it. Wrath is coming. It's just that we're able to be spared through the blood of Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says this, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, God's wrath is going to be revealed, but it's not what God wants for you. He he sent Christ to live a sinless life, to die on a cross for our sins, to rise to life again so that we could receive salvation, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation to God instead of receiving wrath. He doesn't want wrath for you. He wants salvation for you. That's what God wants. He wants salvation for you. But you have to understand clearly that wrath is coming. And when it does, the wicked will experience complete rejection by God. And here's yet another point that shatters our sentimental notions. There are going to be many surprises in the final membership of the kingdom of God. Many surprises in the final membership of the kingdom of God. Jesus is teaching to a largely, at least, a largely Jewish audience here And the question that prompted his teaching was uh, likely an effort to get Jesus to affirm that only Jews were God's chosen people, that that only Jews were going to be saved. But notice what Jesus says. Uh, First notice uh, what he says in verse 28. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. Now, understand what he's saying here. He is saying to people who thought they were in that they were actually out. That's a sobering thought. They thought they were in, but they were out. 
And then he goes on and says in verse 29, people will come from the east and west and north and south, and they will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and those who are first who will be last. With with this, Jesus is saying that there are those who the Jewish people believed were out who were actually going to be in. And while Jesus is speaking to a largely Jewish audience here, this teaching of Jesus is applicable to every one of us here today. You see, we judge things based on outward appearances. But God judges things based on his knowledge of an individual's heart. He knows who loves him. And he knows who just gives the appearance of loving him. You remember the story when the apostle Peter had denied Christ and then he's restored. And Jesus asked him, I believe it's three or four times, but Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And finally at the end, Peter gets kind of exasperated and he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. God does know. So Peter could say that. Because he knew he loved and he knew God knew he loved. But you say, Lord, you know I love you. If you don't really love him, that doesn't work so well. God knows. He knows if you're just saying it or if you actually mean it. He knows who loves him and who just acts like it. He knows who really knows him and he knows who is just casually or culturally acquainted with him. We look at people and we say, in. Oh, they're in. They are definitely in. And then we look at other people and we say, oh, they're out. It's obvious they're out. And this teaching of Jesus lets us know that there are going to be surprises. There are going to be surprises. And here's the main thrust of that teaching. Not everyone who has the appearance of being in is really in. And so let this be a motivator for us to examine ourselves. We need to get really honest with ourselves. Do we really know and love Jesus really? Do you really know and love Jesus? Or are you just hanging around Jesus? Casually acquainted with Jesus? He's a friend of a friend who you kind of like okay, but not enough to get that close yourself. Which is it? What's the case for you? Jesus says at the beginning of this teaching, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. You know, our culture, I think, prefers to think of coming to God as kind of being like an interstate highway system with uh, just innumerable entrance and exit ramps. And and it's kind of like they, they view this as we're free to explore any place of interest as long as what we find on these various entrance and exit ramps is sincerely interesting to us, uh, sincerely thought provoking to us. As long as it is, then it's okay. Because after all, people say, it's really about the journey, not the destination. Do you know that the Bible teaches us that the destination is actually a pretty big deal? 
I mean, the journey is important. That, that, that part is true. It is about the journey. The journey is very important. But, but this thing about it's not about the destination, it's about the journey, that really doesn't hold up scripturally. The destination is a really big deal. And what is pictured here by Jesus, I believe, is that your journey, whatever it may be, is eventually going to lead you to a door. It is a narrow door. And the only way you're going to get entrance into the house of the owner is through the narrow door. Let's allow for our cultural sentiment for a second that says all paths lead to God. That's just irrational, but let's pretend for a second that, that there's some truth to that. What I would say is if that's true, they all converge at a narrow door. And you're on this side of the narrow door, and you need to get on that side of the narrow door. So let's allow for a second that all paths lead to God. I would say they lead to His door. And then we have to be willing to go through the narrow door. Bach says, entry through that door, uh, entry into the kingdom, I'm sorry, comes through the means that God provides or not at all. Friends, this is what the Bible clearly teaches. What is the means that God provides? It's Jesus. The narrow door is Jesus. John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Friends, the sentimental notion that God is okay with whatever, whatever, It is disproven from the first page of the Bible to the last page of the Bible. There's not a shred of objective evidence to support the sentiment that God is okay with whatever. Jesus routinely exposed the inaccuracy of this view in his own teachings. Entry into the kingdom of God comes through the means that God provides or not at all, and the means he provides is Jesus. Jesus is the narrow door, and entering the narrow door means responding personally to Jesus. It means to really and truly know Jesus, not just to know of him, but to truly know him. Jesus says, make every effort to enter the narrow door. Other translations, including the English Standard Version of the Bible, say it this way, strive to enter through the narrow door. And at first glance, this this terminology can be a bit confusing for us that have some understanding of the gospel, as it can come off as though we're teaching that entering the door is the result of our own working hard enough 
a result of what we do rather than what God has done for us. Leon Morris helps us here. He, uh, here's what he writes about this. He says, strive is a word denoting wholehearted action. It's a technical term for competing in the games, and from it we get at our word agonize. It points to, and I, this I think is the key, it points to no half-hearted effort. Then he goes on and says, this does not mean that human achievement merits entrance into the kingdom. It is the attitude that is in mind. So basically, here's the deal. Here is what it's saying when it says strive, when it says make every effort. It's it's really saying that being half-hearted with God doesn't cut it. If you're going to enter through the narrow door of Jesus Christ, it requires surrender of your entire heart. You have to give everything of yourself over to God. David Huff, uh, David and the Giants, if some of you are familiar with them, a, a Christian rock band from the 70s, I think, maybe even the 60s. Uh, but about 20 years ago, they had a song Some of the words of the song said, here's my heart, here's my soul, here's the peace, God, that was always missing. Savior, here's my heart. And that's what's required to enter the narrow door. Your whole heart committed to Jesus Christ. This entire sentimentality shattering teaching of Jesus was initiated by a simple question. Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Notice it's a a theoretical question. It's not really a personal question. It's more theoretical. But Jesus doesn't so much answer the theoretical question as he uses it to make the question personal. Notice that in answering the question, he uses the word you... Four times. Now, it's possible, I guess, that he's using the word you in a kind of a generic sense. Probably both things are untrue, but but I actually envision Jesus looking at the questioner as he says, you. I think Jesus is making this very personal. You know, it's interesting for us to ponder things like how many people will be saved? I mean, heaven's a big place. We know that. So lots of people are going to be saved. At the same time, Scripture says things like, uh, few there be that find, find their way there. So it's kind of an interesting question to entertain, you know, exactly how many people are going to be in heaven. But here's the most pressing concern for each of us here today. It's a much more personal thing. Jesus takes this theoretical question, and in effect, what he says is, what about you? Where are you with God? Do you really love God? Have you really entered through the narrow door by giving your whole heart to God? Or do you look Christian, but really you're just casually, culturally acquainted with Jesus? Friends, our sentimental notions about God are largely, almost entirely wrong. 
Have you entered through the narrow door? Have you given your whole heart to Jesus? It is the most important question that you will ever answer. It is the question upon which our entire lives hinge. Why don't you stand?